One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, marine biologist Helen Scales tells us about the secret life and curious afterlife of seashells in her book, Spirals in Time. Helen Scales is a marine biologist, a freelance researcher and broadcaster. She appears regularly on BBC Radio 4, Sky News and the BBC World Service and has presented documentaries on topics such as whether people will ever live underwater, the science of making and surfing waves and the intricacies of sharks' minds. Her doctorate involved searching for giant endangered fish in Borneo. She's also tagged sharks in California and once spent a year cataloguing all the marine life she could find surrounding a hundred islands in the Andaman Sea. She's the author of a book about seahorses, Poseidon's Steed, and her latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Spirals in Time, The Secret Life and Curious Afterlife of Seashells. So, Helen, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. It's a huge pleasure to be here. Thanks. Before we talk about Spirals in Time, let's talk about why you became a marine biologist. Sure. Well, I grew up as a kid who loved the outside, loved loved nature and being out sort of outside. We would go on family holidays to Cornwall. I mean, back then I did kind of, I, I was very much drawn to the sea and I, I did, that was the my favourite place to go was when mm-hmm. we went, went to the beaches uh, and uh, romped around and looked for buried treasure in caves and, and that kind of thing, and, you know, and, uh, and did everything you're supposed to do on beaches, make sandcastles, dig holes, went swimming in, in ponds and all that kind of thing. But I guess kind of as, an, as a young teenager, I thought I was going to go and save the rainforest because this was around the time it was like the early 90s when deforestation and like those sorts of green issues were just like headline news so I became a vegetarian and I bugged my friends about the Amazon being burnt out for making McDonald's burgers and then I so it was all very green and then um, I was about 16 and I decided I can't remember why but I decided I'd learn to scuba dive a friend and, and me went to um our local swimming pool and they ran like a scuba diving introductory thing and we jumped in the swimming pool and I was like this is pretty cool yeah let's give this a go so we both went along we had like every week we would go and train in the pool and then I did my first open water dive and it was March in Leicester in a flooded gravel pit oh yeah I know it it's you know, it's a real jewel of a, of a dive site. And, Lots uh, of people drown in that quarry. People I don't know how they managed to, because there's a decompression chamber on the side of this big lake, so you just have to literally pop yourself out of the water into it and you should be fine, but clearly, no. Anyway, so it, it was March, it was four degrees centigrade, which is like if you put ice into a glass of water and stir it, that's four degrees. Because I did this in chemistry class the next day, I was like, look, I dived in this, I put my thermometer in, it was just freezing. But I saw 
a single little fish swimming through the murk of this murky gravel pit and I was totally hooked I don't know what it was it was something about being in its world mm-hmm. and kind of knowing that I was sort of I could swim after it and if I wanted to and, and I was kind of this version a noisy very cold version of a fish I was completely addicted to this like instantly and it all got better from there really so so I guess my vision turned from green to blue and that's when I realised, yes, I was going to do marine biology. That was where I was going to go. So it kind of, it was sort of being in, in the water. And then obviously once I then got out into the actual ocean, mm-hmm. it was just like, that was the perfect thing for me. I just felt so at home and it was so much to explore and it was just perfect. So yeah, I guess that's sort of how it happened. And so this, this book ostensibly is about seashells, but really it's about, I guess, one type of seashell or seashells that belong to mollusks. So, well, what has shells that isn't a mollusk, first of all? <laughs> there are other things. I think I sort of decided at the beginning of the book to get like, yeah, there are other seashells. I'm not going to talk about those. So, I mean, I guess it, you, could, you could think that crabs and lobsters, they have shells, they have harder <laughs> outer coverings. Um, so, technically, they're sh- seashells. We call them shellfish, so I guess they come in the same kind of category. They're different. I mean, there's are crustaceans, different group of animals, and they shed their shells frequently, <laughs> so that's kind of different. There are lots of also tiny, like, photosynthetic, single-celled creatures in the sea, phytoplankton of different varieties that are you know, green and harness the sun's energy and they are a lot of them make hard shells out of some some of them out of calcium carbonate the same stuff as the mollusks we're going to mm-hmm. talk about some of them are made out of silica so really it's just glass actually things like diatoms made of glass um so in a way i think those are seashells too i guess sea urchins they've got out hard cases that would be a seashell i mean there's various things you would find on a beach and that you probably you know, could think you'd pick it up and think oh this is good the seashell and that's fine I just you know but the biggest group and the most diverse group are the mollusks when it comes to making shells so yeah so I mean it is a big and diverse group so what is a mollusk so yeah this is what is a mollusk is a question that's really bugged scientists for ages <laughs> uh, and I quite enjoy the fact that we weren't really sure and um, you know back in Aristotle's time he had he caught I think he caught one group of the mollusks I think back then he thought were all the soft creatures like squid and octopus and they are mollusks as we think of them today. So those sort of soft guys. Some of them have shells on the inside. Squid and cuttlefish have shells on the inside. Octopus have mostly lost their shells. And then over time we've kind of shoved loads of other things into the mollusk basket. Like barnacles are thought to be mollusks, but they're not. They look like mollusks, but they're actually crustaceans. They are relatives of crabs and they stick themselves to rocks and they look very mollusky. And things like bryozoans, which are these weird creatures that grow in sort of microscopic mats across seaweeds and they were thought to be mollusks but we now understand that mollusks are definitely things like clams and cockles and oysters and mussels they're sort of two-shelled bivalves as well as snails and slugs are the gastropods the ones that uh, most of them have a single spiraling shell they're also known as univalves although i don't actually use that word in the book your bivalves with two shells Mm -hmm. and your univalves with one uh, and then you've got chitons, which are these weird ones that look a bit like a, um, a woodlouse that's been squashed flat and clamped to a rock. And they've got this series of usually eight plates across their backs. And they're quite weird. You don't often see those. They're quite cool. So yeah, so sort of snails, uh, bivalves, um, chitons. Uh, you've got your cephalopods, which are the, the, the octopus, squid, that group. And then a few odd weird ones like, oh, tusk shells. They're quite nice. They're, they do look like little miniature elephant tusks. Mm-hmm. They're little things, long and thin. 
stick in the seabed. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's those are the kind of the main animals that now we kind of all group together to be the mollusks. And there's a couple that don't have shells, a couple of weird ones that don't have shells. Although you just like slugs don't have shells, right? You just mentioned slugs. Slugs don't have shells. Mostly, <laughs> some have little shells, or kind of inside yeah. they have shells. Uh, and I have this weird thing about having completely just disgusted by slugs that live on land. They're like the only thing in the animal kingdom I really cannot stand are slugs. <laughs> but put them in the sea, and they are the same group of animals. I mean, they're sort of different, slightly different bits of the, the mollusk family tree, but they're all gastropods that have lost their shells. But they're beautiful, they're coloured, beautiful colours, and I don't mind them at all, I think they're lovely. But they have to live in the sea for me to like slugs. <laughs> um, yeah, which other ones don't have shells? Uh, let me think. Uh, Selenogastros, or don't oh. think that, uh, I can't even begin yeah, to pronounce Yeah, there's two things. weird ones actually, yeah, I kind of just mentioned them because I probably can't pronounce them either. I think they're the Selenogastros and the Cordophobiates. And they do look like worms, really. Mm. They're little shiny worms. They don't have shells. They have these sort of spicules that reflect the light. Um, and they live in the deep sea. You don't normally see them. And they are odd, really weird things. But genetically, we can see that they are mollusks. So there's the, the weird ones. I've never seen one. Actually, no, I have. I've seen one in a jar at the Natural History Museum. Um, and they just look like worms, basically. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, how many species are there? But actually, we should probably talk about, you know, this is a thing that a lot of these things live right down in the bottom of oceans. So we can't possibly tell how many species there are, can we? What's the sort of estimates? So I guess, um, like with any group of animals, the problem is there isn't really a kind of central official record that mm-hmm. you have to go to and say, I found a new mollusk and here it is and took it off. And, and everyone knows that that's what you're talking about. Because generally what happens when new species are found is that they are described in a scientific paper. Um, and you have to actually deposit a specimen somewhere where people can go and look at it, so a museum mm-hmm. um, somewhere. But um, that doesn't stop people from renaming things and kind of double naming and stuff like that. So, but people are, there's efforts now to kind of bring it all together and try and figure out what is happening, both in the mollusks and, and more generally. There's a thing called worms, which is, I think it's like the world, basically a register of marine species. Uh, and they're starting to do this kind of just mm-hmm. let's figure out what we have and and see where we've kind of doubled up. And um, they did this recent study and showed that the, ne- the species that's been named, overnamed the most, so given multiple names, multiple scientific names for what actually is one species, is a mollusk. It's a mollusk uh, that lives on the shores of, uh, like, rocky shores around the UK. It's mm-hmm. called the rough periwinkle. And it's had, like, 112 names. Like, it's been way overnamed. So that's like, okay, so there's only one of those, not 100 of those. And they've been through, and I think I think they've found somewhere in the region of maybe fifty or 60,000 species that have been named and found and kind of checked off now. Of like, yeah, this is definitely a new, a, a separate identifiable mm-hmm. mollusk species. But the big question, which is the one I find really fascinating, is, well, if we could find them all, and, and ultimately, how many are there that we mm-hmm. haven't found still? And the, the estimates vary so much. Like, the textbooks, it's brilliant. You look at all the kind of marine biology textbooks, and they go from, oh, yeah, probably about maybe 70,000 to 200,000. And, you know, it's like, well, how, how do we know? And But I did actually, I spent some time speaking to a, one of the top experts in mollusk taxonomy and the naming of species. There's a guy called Philippe Boucher from mm. the Natural History Museum in Paris. Um, and he kind of spends his time basically organising expeditions in cool places of the world just to go and find mollusks. Yeah. And that's kind of his job. And he brings them back and then he hands them out to experts and says, right, tell us what we've got. But he basically is the guy who goes, right, this is how we find new species because I know how to look in the right sort of places and mm. that kind of stuff. So he's got a real handle on what's going on. And he he puts his name, he kind of nails his colours to 200,000. Mainly from the tropics, actually. And he, mm-hmm. He's done loads of studies and 
Papua New Guinea and bits of the, the oceans that are just mega, mega diverse. And he's like, yeah, he's pretty sure that we, we if we did find them all, we could probably get to 200,000, which is huge. It's really huge. And like, to put it in a bit of context, mm-hmm. um, so, so the mollusk, it's a phylum, which is one sort of level of just sort of organisation in the animal kingdom. So compare it to another phylum, so kind of roughly equivalent, are the arthropods, which include all the insects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are the that is the most diverse phylum. So they win, and there's like at least a million, and they're mostly insects, and they're mostly beetles. Mm-hmm. But mollusks come second with two hundred thousand, and then some of them are really tiny. They're they're phyla that have maybe a thousand or so species, mm-hmm. like much much smaller. Um, like us vertebrates, we're part of the the chordates, uh, and there's, I think I don't know in total, but I mean the mammals, which is you know not even a phylum, that's much smaller. It's like maybe I think sixteen thousand or something like that. Was that birds? Like it's now it's a, it's yeah. tens of thousands. It's not hundreds of thousands. There's tons of mollusks. And well, obviously, I mean, if I was for Boucher, I'd of course be going off to like you know Papua New Guinea and Malaysia and putting in orders to do that. But these things are anywhere. So you're talking the book about a terrifying slug with teeth that was found in a garden in Wales. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm glad I didn't find that one. It's the only predatory slug we've got in the UK. Ah, does that are It's white and has these teeth that stand up on end like flick knives. Yeah, no, it is, that is the cool thing about mollusks too. It is, you, all you need to do is, is go into your local park or, or um, your back garden or go go to the beach and you'll you'll find the remains of them, you'll find their shells and you hopefully find some living ones too. And yeah, new species do show up. It's just like one of those things of you do just have to look in places that no one's looked or just it just happens to be that mm-hmm. I think actually that um that weird uh, the ghost slug that we found in, that was found in Cardiff. I think that they think might have been introduced in like through garden mm-hmm. pots and imported, so it might not be native to the UK. But yeah, still no one had found it. So yeah. And I say a garden, but mollusks are a group of animals that are found like everywhere. And let's talk about some of the environments that they're in, or some of the you know obviously we know they're in the sea. Some of the odder environments that they might be found in. Uh, yeah. So I mean they evolved first in the sea, so they are sort of principally marine species. But I think in a way that's also how they trump the insects because insects don't live in the sea mm. so that's like this huge living space which insects haven't inhabited um, so they may be slightly less diverse but mollusks have gone everywhere because they've moved out of salt water they've evolved to live in fresh waters so you can find them in ponds and lakes and rivers like I just um, we dug a, a pond in our garden we just dug a big hole filled it with water laid lake liner and filled it with water and Stuff just arrived, which was brilliant. We didn't we put in some plants, but that was it. And just animals and things arrived, including mollusks. Like they just showed up. <laughs> and I guess they were brought on like birds' feet and stuff, like eggs and things like that. They just they just arrived. So we've got little cool little pond snails, and it's like, yay, they're just there. So they live in fresh waters, and then some of the, the slugs and snails are the only group of the the mollusks that moved on to land. So we do get them living in the most extraordinary places that you wouldn't ever really imagine. So there are snails that live at the top of mountains. I mean, they do live in trees, which is quite cool. I was in West Africa a couple of years ago and it was really dry. It hadn't dry, it rained for months. And then it rained, like it really rained one night. And I was outside having my breakfast and this massive like tree slug was just sat on the tree next to me. And I was like, oh, 
hello. Like, well, did you have a good sleep? Because <laughs> clearly they just sort of hide when it's dry. Um, but you can find them in deserts as well. You can find snails that live in deserts. I mean, they mostly, when it's dry, they'll hide in their shells and kind of seal them off so mm-hmm. that they don't dry out. And then when it does rain, they can kind of emerge and do what they need to do. And there's actually a really lovely story about a snail that was collected by the Naturalist Museum in London. I don't think I put it in the book, actually. And it's, um, it's quite a classic case of... So they just these guys collected lots of mollusks. And at that point, what they did with specimens was glue them to boards. Mm-hmm. Now they put them in sort of packets and... Um, plastic packets and little drawers and stick them into cabinets but that then they glued them to boards and this one was glued to a board and then about two years after it was collected it woke up and wandered off and it was alive (laughs) they hadn't realized there was a little snail hidden right inside the shell and it apparently survived for a few years and they still have that actual and it did eventually die but they still have that actual shell so they can survive for ages and they found snails living miles underneath the surface of the sort of in deep deep caves like a mile down as well I think it was in Croatia they found this tiny blind snail living in the mm-hmm. midst of this crazy um, this crazy place underground so they are the only thing they haven't really done is take to the skies mollusks don't fly such but they've done everything else and they live anywhere else I'm Ian Sinclair, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So we should bring in shells, really, because that's what the book is about. So why, why do they have shells? So, yeah, so the shells of mollusks, first and foremost, it's for protection, because they are there nice and hard, they're made of calcium carbonate, so essentially chalk. And, um, and it's, yeah, so it's a good way of defending themselves from getting eaten by something else. Mm-hmm. Um, good way of, once the ones came out on land, it's a really important way for them not to dry out. Although slugs do live on land, but they generally have to stay in damp places and they have lots of sticky mucus to kind mm-hmm. of stop from drying out. But so shells, yeah, they're, they are great protection. Like if anyone's ever tried to, um, the bivalves are the best ones. Um, they're two they're, they're twin shells that clamp together and if you've ever tried to get into an oyster like chuck an oyster you know how hard it is mm-hmm. so it's really good protection but then the thing that I kind of really enjoyed also writing the book was uncovering all the other things that shells are used for and have evolved and they've been really kind of flexible and through natural selection they've been shaped into all sorts of different things and I think that's part of the kind of success of mollusks is that they've been able to use the shell in all sorts of different ways mm-hmm. so for example a really brilliant mollusk is the chambered nautilus which are these these mollusks that, that look a lot like ammonites that were this extinct uh, group of mollusks that were amazing but have all, all went extinct um about the same time as the dinosaurs 65 million years ago uh so they have these spiraling shells um which they and they live inside in the kind of final chamber of that because it's all divided up into chambers and actually that's why it's called chambered nautilus um and if you cut one down through the middle you see these chambers it's very beautiful and they fill those chambers with gas uh, so they live in the deep sea like really deep down hundreds of meters uh, and that gas helps to make them buoyant mm-hmm. so that they it's a bit like having like a scuba diver wears a, a stab jacket like a, um, a buoyancy device and you can fill it with air to sort of equalize your weight to the surrounding water mm-hmm. so you can just float uh, and that's sort of what the chambered nautilus do, does it has this sort of internal buoyancy chamber so that's what they use their shells for and it makes it less hard work for them to swim around they have less use less energy to swim around which is pretty cool another one of my favorites uh, in terms of how the shells are used is a thing called the heart cockle 
which are these little little shells, little bivalves that live uh, next to coral reefs and the sandy bits next to coral reefs. And they actually use their shells like little greenhouses because they have inside their tissues, they have single-celled algae, which are kind of symbiotic. So mm-hmm. they live there and the, the, the algae get a nice safe place to live. And there are actually whole sort of transparent bits of the shell which let the sunlight in so that they get lots of lovely sunlight so they can photosynthesize and harness the sun's energy and produce sugars, which the mollusk then eats. So it's this lovely relationship between the mollusk this um, this algae that lives inside it and these beautiful little shells and they do look like little pink hearts they're very cute <laughs> so there's obviously uh, I mean, a huge variety of designs of shells in terms of size colour some have got you know spikes and things on some have got sort of designs which we'll talk about in a little while but actually there's a limited amount of designs beneath that isn't there and I want to talk, talk about this through through the science that's been done on this of people trying to sort of work out what shell designs would work and which ones wouldn't this is a brilliant bit of um, mathematics it's again it's one of these a bit like what is a mollusk one of the big questions that bugged scientists for a long time um, and sort of philosophers was uh, what is the math what are the mathematics behind shells like you say there's all these different shapes and um, huge, huge variety of, of shell shapes that you can find, and it goes back and back. And it was Rene Descartes who originally described the shape of the chambered nautilus, yeah. and that kind of cut through. And it's a shape you see in all sorts of parts of nature, but it's called the logarithmic spiral. So that's the kind of basis of shell making. Is this? It's a shell. It's a spiral that expands at a constant rate. So essentially, just imagine um, you're spinning around, put a pencil on a piece of paper and spin it outwards, round and round, and it gets bigger at a constant rate, which means that no matter how big it is or small it is, it's the same shape. And that was quite early on to figure out that, yeah, probably shells and certainly chambered nautiluses have this sort of basic spiral that's inside the shells. But that's only two dimensions. Mm. What about 3D? The point is there's all these beautiful three-dimensional shells. And the first guy to really kind of start thinking about this was a guy called Darcy Wentworth Thompson. Uh, this beginning of the 20th century he was writing he wrote a huge book called On Growth and Form and he was really trying to get to grips with shapes throughout nature and he wanted to understand the underlying mathematics of a a splash and a a deer's antler and and all these different things and one of the shapes he looked at were were shells and he came up with this idea that maybe all you need are four simple mathematical rules to describe any type of shell and it was his kind of concept that a shell really is like a shape maybe a circle spinning around a three-dimensional space, like a two-dimensional circle spinning in three dimensions. And if you took that logarithmic spiral and then fought three other rules, basically determining how how tall the shell is, so how kind of how quickly it falls down that central mm-hmm. axis, big it gets, how much it kind of splays out, um, and also how kind of chubby it is. So how much the world's kind of squashing together. Mm-hmm. And he thought that if you kind of just took those four basic rules and tweaked them slightly, perhaps you could make any shell. And it was just an idea, though, at that point, because he didn't have any way of really testing it. So he just sort of wrote about it and drew some diagrams, and that's kind of it. And then 40 years later, uh, a paleontologist kind of picked up these equations, a guy called David Raup, and he kind of wanted to revisit this idea of shell making. And he did something quite unusual for a paleontologist, and that was he used a computer. And back then, in the 50s, um, the computers were massive. He was using these mainframe huge things mm-hmm. that were originally designed for making missiles and, um, uh, you know, sort of aeroplanes and things. And so I think he kind of got a bit of time on one of them overnight and said, well, I want to plug these equations in and mm-hmm. see if I can make some shells. And he did. And, he, and it showed that Thompson was basically right, that you, you plug in these four basic equations 
And all of the shells kind of just appeared before his eyes. He called it the Museum of All Possible Shells, which I love the sort of idea of walking around this space and just seeing all these different shapes slowly. Because if you sort of change one of those parameters, it would just mean that a, a clam would evolve, sort of cha- just slowly, slowly change shape, and suddenly it becomes a, a chambered nautilus. Mm-hmm. And it does work. And there's now videos online you can see that have been kind of... Cause uh, it's easy to do this. You can mm-hmm. actually there are programs you can play with and have a go at making yourselves. And you see that you sort of think, oh yeah, it is kind of, you know, if it expands that way, yeah, it does become a, a chamber nautilus. Well, but the, it, the clam is yeah. a great example of that because like you, you picture a clam shell and you think it's just a flat thing, mm. right? But actually, yeah, there's like a little tiny knotty bit and it just flares out really quickly. Yeah. It spirals. So yeah. It is a spiral. It is. It's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, it is a spiral. It, uh, but you wouldn't. Yeah, I think until you, you've seen these sorts of the evolving shapes it's hard to imagine that but um, but they do and the kind of really cool thing that emerged from Raup's this this output this computer program that he did was he realised that actually not all of those shells that he made actually exist in the in the natural world or even you know in the fossil record there were loads that looked like they should work I mean some of them probably wouldn't have worked for various reasons like it would be a clam that wouldn't open yeah. because the, it's just it's the wrong shape um, but there are plenty of fairly, you know, decent-looking shells, but you don't see them in the natural world, or at least we haven't found them yet. And it came, it kind of opened up this whole new part of biology, which is this idea of what has evolved and what's possible, yeah. and then trying to understand um, why certain things evolved. And there's two camps, really. Some people think that, you know, eventually everything will evolve, and eventually we will see, we would see all of it, all possible shells. It's just a matter of time, and there's sort of a situation where that would be useful to be that shape. And there are others who think that actually there's limits to what can evolve and that it would never happen that way. And it's not just shells now. People are making these sort of museums for beetles and plants and phytoplankton and looking at animals and and plants in different ways. It's pretty cool. So I want to talk about how the shells are made. But before we do that, let's bring in another piece of the the mollusk anatomy, which is something called the mantle. So explain to us what that is. So the mantle is basically a soft, the soft squishy part of a mollusk that produces the shell so if you eat uh, if you've ever eaten a mussel um, like just normal mussels the pink bit of flesh that you would see once it's cooked and the shell's popped open that's the mantle so it kind of it covers the outside of the animal or the inside inside the shell and um, yeah it's basically the bits that makes the shell in the ones that still have their shells Mm -hmm. Um, mantle you'd see in other other mollusks like um, it's the outside of an an octopus and it's the bit that changes colour and um, that you know in cuttlefish as well they use bits of their mantle to swim like they have a frilly edge to their bodies and that's their mantle just sort of stuck out so the mantle is used can be used for moving around and as well but primarily it's this shell making tissue basically Mm. And so how does it make the shell? So um, it, it basically it's a kind of ingenious way of turning um, irons and uh, compounds in the water into ceramics. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's basically what they're doing, is taking in um, ions of calcium and carbonate from the diet and from the water and secreting it into this solid and um, crystalline form. It's at, sort of at the leading edge, the, sort of the, the open edge of a shell is where the shell, new shell is made. The, the mantle will lay down new shell material around that open open mouth. Um, and it does so kind of in stops and starts, so it doesn't continually grow, but it will kind mm-hmm. of grow a bit when going is good, and when it's warm, they've got lots of food. Um, and then they'll stop and start. And that's actually, you can count um, a bit like tree rings, you can count the rings in a shell, so you can take a cockle shell and pretty much work out how old it is, because it will have like a, a fast growing season in mm-hmm. the summer when it's growing lots, and then... Slow growth will slow down, and you'll get a sort of thinner band. 
difference. You can count how old a mollusk is from from those sorts of bands in its shell. And they keep their shells their whole life. So they're not like crabs that will grow too big and then they they leave their shell behind and kind of cast it off and molt and then make a new one. They keep it. So if you look at the inside, take a snail shell, a spiralling snail shell, and look at the tiny bit right in the middle, that's the shell it had when it was a baby. That's its baby shell. Um, and it will just have grown it bigger and bigger um, as it got older. And yeah, and the process right at that leading edge, it's basically the sort of, it's essentially that the mantle squeezes these irons into a little gap between itself and the shell, and that sort of forms a matrix. And there's also protein in there as well. I think it, it depends on the mollusk, but there's a bit of, there's a protein scaffold that gets put down first, and then it fills in the gaps with calcium carbonate, and that solidifies and, and it, it gets bigger. Yeah. I mentioned that. Often mollusks have patterned shells, which at first glance we might think are for like camouflage or, or, or something like that, and no doubt some of them are. And you mentioned also the, the cuttlefish and octopuses, which you know can change colour and things. It's obviously a very advanced form of it. Um, but often these shells are covered over, either with part of the mantle or with like weed or you know some sort of thing, and therefore you can't see that. So, so why do we think? Some mollusks have patterned shells, even though that patterning might be hidden. It's a brilliant piece of kind of investigation that for a long time scientists just didn't, we just didn't know why they had these patterns. And it was like, it was just a weird, it was almost explained like it was natural selection was left to run riot and it didn't really matter what patterns they had and they just kind of went crazy and that's you see certain groups of mollusks like the cone shells have these beautiful intricate patterns which are just really just so complex you think well you know it must have had a, some sort of purpose there must be some reason for having this but then sn- cone snails live most of their lives buried in the sand and nothing sees them so it's in a.m. Yeah, they have them um, this layer actually they do have a layer of protein that grows on the outside of some shells called the periostracum um, and it, so in some of them it looks kind of like hairy, a sort of hairy layer. Um, so when that's there, yeah, you can't see the patterns. But then a couple of scientists um, in California came up with a theory that maybe what shells are doing is they're leaving themselves a message about where they've got to in that shell-making process. Because I said already that it's stop and start. So they're not continually making a, their shell. And so their theory is actually that, that, that the mantle... And kind of lick over the edge of the open edge of the shell where it's growing and taste, sort of chemically taste, this pattern that they've laid down and then line themselves up to be in the right place to carry on making more shell. Otherwise it would all just go a bit bonkers and the shape would be lost and the patterns, uh, you know, would be all over the place as well. So, so that's the theory. And actually, they haven't really tested this yet. It seems like it's likely. There's lots of nerves that you see in the mantle that could be sensory, so they could be detecting these pigments. We don't actually know the pigments, what they are. Mm-hmm. Like, no one even really knows what is painting shells and all these colours. It's like a big mystery still. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No one's looked into it. Um, but again, it's a little bit like these mathematical rules that make the shape of the shell. It seems that they're actually fairly simple mathematics that could explain these beautiful patterns. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of these simple, almost like a simple linear array of, of rules about how, well, if, if this this cell here is switched on for pigment production, then it tells the neighbouring cells to either switch on or switch off. And it kind of, you get these patterns that out of really simple rules kind of generate huge complexity. Uh, and a lot of the shells patterns that we see in cone cells, you can actually explain through these these sorts of interactions going on, possibly, you know, in their sort of, in the mantle, it could be that it's just a sort of, originally people thought maybe it was passages of, um, of hormones, but now it's probably more likely to be under nervous control, so the nerves that kind of actually generate, sort of self-generate these patterns. But I just love this idea of mollusks leaving themselves messages across their shells, like, here we are, get, you know, carry on from here. And actually, they could, it could lead into some new interesting parts of research as well. I mean, because you could think, oh, whatever, who cares about how mollusks paint themselves? But it is this idea of them being able to assess the past and predict the future and um, you know it's a simple nervous array so perhaps it could help us understand more about more complex brains and nervous systems mm-hmm. that you know it, perhaps it gives us an insight into how memories are formed in more complex things like humans but yeah it's pretty cool. Just one more question on um, mollusk biology then before we move on and again it's sort of leading on from this idea that they, they follow certain mathematical rules one of which is that the vast majority of mollusks are, for want of a better way of describing it, right-handed. So as a, um, as a member of a small persecuted minority of left-handed people, I want to know what's wrong with left-handed mollusks. <laughs> Weirdly, as well, it's the same proportion of uh, snails are left-handed as humans are left-handed. Mm-hmm. So that's odd, we don't know why. But we do know why it isn't very, it's not very good being a left-handed snail. They don't get to have sex enough. Um, which is very important when you're a snail and anything else, really. So the theories are there's been lots of really, frankly, bonkers studies to try and understand why being left coiling or right coiling is uh, advantageous. And it basically comes down to the problem of if if, if you're a snail and your shell doesn't match your partner's, then you just aren't going to be able to fit the right bits in the right places because it's not only their shells that are spinning one way, but their bodies are also asymmetrical. So most gastropods, which is mostly what we're talking about here with these spiralling shells, uh, most of the ones that live in the sea are um, they have separate sexes. They're male and female. On land, they tend to be hermaphrodites, um, so they both have each sets of um, sexual organs, but they will take turns in being male and female, so they will still mate up and partner. So it is important that they that they get it right. And and there's just been studies where people have taken snails that are left and right coiling and put them together in, in a box 
and left them alone. And that usually is enough to make more snails, give them lots of lettuce and they'll be fine. <laughs> um, but when they're left and right coiling, they just don't. They just cannot figure it out. Like one way of mating for snails is face-to-face. So they kind of, they, they face each other. And, but the male's penis just doesn't manage to make it into the female's paw, which is what they need to do to transfer the sperm. And it just doesn't work. So it's like, there you go. I'm afraid it just happens that the majority of species at the moment, and we don't really know why it went that way, but it just happens that right is the kind of fashionable thing to do right now for snails. And it might change. But the little left-handers, I mean, there are some species that have evolved to be left-handed and sometimes it's more, it is advantageous. Like, for example, there's an island of Japan where there are these crazy snakes that have evolved to sneak up on snails and bite them from one side and they've kind of got lopsided fangs so that they actually can really easily get their teeth into a right coiling snail but if they go to a left coiling snail it just pings off or they can't they just can't get any purchase on these left coiling snails so those ones survive actually and then do quite well mm-hmm. so you know there are cases where it's really good to be a left coiling snail but on the whole they tend to be a bit lonely and they don't tend to get have many babies and that's what really matters <laughs> to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Helen Scales and we're talking about her book Spirals in Time, The Secret Life and Curious Afterlife of Seashells. And Helen, in this half I want to move away from talking about mollusk biology and look more at the way human beings have used shells and mollusks um, in culture and art. And but before we do that, before we look at some good art, I happen to know that you're, you're something of a, a connoisseur of terrible shell art, so let's talk about that for a moment. <laughs> yes. I I paid a couple of visits to the Natural History Museum in London um, to meet the curators and to chat about mollusks and so on, and, um, and see their fantastic collections. But when you walk into the mollusk section, which is um, underneath the dinosaurs, you go through a little side door and they lead you downstairs, and it's all very exciting, and you get to see the kind of back rooms where so much of the collections are kept that you don't get to see normally. Um, but the first thing you see when you walk into the mollusk section is this big cabinet, which they call their Cabinet of Horrors, and it's full of kind of kitschy shell craft stuff that they've been given over the years. And I feel kind of bad that in the book I really slated this because then I went back and I actually think that the curators do, they do quite like this stuff. They feel, you know, fairly kind of close to all these knickknacks that have been given to them. But I kind of slated it a bit and because uh, I do, I, the problem I have with all of this stuff is that, um, so we're talking, you know, like a cowrie shell with googly eyes and a little pair of glasses to make, to make it look like a turtle with a hat. And, you know, you buy this on holiday or whatever by the beach. Um, or, uh, or, like, you know, a bunch of shells stuck together to look like a frog smoking a cigar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just... It's not that I don't have a sense of humour about these things, but I just feel that 
uh, somehow we are forgetting the sort of true beauty of shells. And yeah, I can't reach out as a beautiful thing. It doesn't need googly eyes to improve <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, I just sort of feel like it's turning them into something that I don't think they need to be. And um, so I actually did a bit of research online. I put, I sort of did, I've been doing hunting around for the ugliest pictures I can find. Um, and my favourite is these people. On, uh, there's a lady on eBay selling these just grotesque kind of human head sort of busts, ceramic busts covered in just the most ugly collection of shells and then there's like diamonds sort of encrusted seahorse here and pearls here and and she's charging vast sums of money for these and I don't know who is buying them it's quite amazing to me <laughs> so yeah I guess I'm on a bit of a crusade to kind of reinstate the the beauty and the the elegance in shells and well, the, this know. is not a new thing though I mean there's a reproduced in the book some really great photographs in the book but one of them is of a I think an Aztec serpent that's made of sort of like, you know, turquoise, but also shells. Um, so the people have been doing, oh, that's a very beautiful thing, of course, but they've been doing like bad shell art for a long time. <laughs> it's true. Yes, it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, we've been using shells for a very long time. Um, and it's obvious why we use them as a kind of material. So shiny and white, and that's um, a really significant colour in many ways. So there's lots of symbolism in that kind of, the colour of, birth and, and death depending on where you are they're shiny beautiful pretty colours so yeah they, I, I get it I get why shells have been used uh, and I just think maybe lately mostly we, well maybe people are still doing nice things somewhere with shells but perhaps we used to be a bit more I don't know a bit more tasteful about it I presume you've been to the shell grotto I have been to various Margate. grottos. Um, have you been to my Margate? I haven't, and I should. I really should. Because that one, we don't even know why it was built, do we? It's sort of a big mystery. Well, it, it's um, not that big a mystery. Oh, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, um, it has this idea that it's some ancient mystery thing. But really, it was obviously built by some Victorian guy for fun or whatever. But it's very impressive. It's huge, I hear. Yeah, it's big, it's a big thing, it's an impressive thing. Yeah, yeah. and kind of, I'm sure, pretty ugly too. I mean, the ones I've been to, you kind of, I guess you do go, oh yeah, yeah, it's impressive. Someone dug a hole and they got loads and loads and loads of shells and they've arranged them and they've stuck them on the walls and yeah, okay. Yeah, I get that, I suppose. It's sort of, it is trying to recreate this sort of uh, exotic idea of a space. Just so many shells and all. Well, I said said we've been doing this for a very long time, so let's perhaps talk about how long have we been doing it. You look in this book about, you know, remains found over 100,000 years old of human beings using shells in some sort of decorative way. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the kind of the significance of it, really, is that this... The first use of shells as as jewellery, so they've been found with holes in and wear marks, and that suggest they've been strung on a string and mm-hmm. worn. Actually, they've been worn for a while next to each other, and some have pigment rubbed into them, like ochre pigments. Um, but it dates back. Uh, the dates keep getting put further and further back. I think originally it was sixty thousand years, and then eighty, and now like maybe one hundred twenty-five thousand years ago in Africa, both in the north and in the south. So way apart, people who. Could surely have nothing to do with each other back then mm-hmm. were using shells in this symbolic way and it's not like the tools that human early humans evolved that were useful for killing stuff and making food and whatever there was no purpose really no practical purpose to these shells so it really represents a kind of dawn of that bit of the human brain which is 
thinking about things in an abstract way and kind of making sense of the world and maybe identifying themselves as a particular group of people or something was going on. We don't know what. And that's, you know, we won't, probably won't ever really know what they thought these shells were and, and whatever, but they clearly were significant and, um, and they were using them in ways that you know, we still do today. We still wear, you know, people still find people wearing shells and necklaces. So, yeah, pretty crazy to think it's been going on pretty much since the beginning mm-hmm. of modern thought, really. And you talk about this rather extraordinary find of like mass graves off of the coast of Bulgaria as well. What's that? Yeah, that's brilliant. So that's a kind of shell called the spondylus shell. And the kind of significance of this this finding, um, I think it was in the 70s, they, they dug up this, this city of the dead and found all these graves um, from a period about 7,000 years ago. So this is you know, a leap forward from this African stuff, but still a long, long time ago. Um, and it was a period of time we refer to as Old Europe. And up until that point, it was thought that Old Europe was kind of an egalitarian society. These were kind of pastoralists moving out of the Middle East. Um, you know, they'd figured out some crops and they'd figured out they domesticated some of the livestock. But there was up until that point no evidence that there were basically any any sort of hierarchies in society. And then they found these graves full of gold treasure and lots of just clearly opulent stuff mm-hmm. was going on. And so clearly there were big, rich fat blokes at the top who were in charge of everybody else. There was no doubt that there was this hierarchy. Um, and amongst the gold, so this was the oldest gold hoard that had been found, I think still today, so 7,000 years old. And there was the one guy, the chief of the uh, of these old Europeans, who um, was in a grave, like, just he was wearing gold earrings and gold kneecaps and just had gold clothes, gold penis sheath, as you do, and it clearly is a gold penis sheath. You see the pictures and that's what it was. But he also had lots of jewellery made of this shell called spondylus. It's a white shell and they carved it into things like bracelets. And he was wearing this bracelet around his upper arm, um, which weirdly was clearly kind of had been crafted really carefully by somebody and then broken deliberately and then fixed with a gold plate which is weird, um, but kind of fascinating. And there's other objects as well. They think, and they found these rings, these spondylus bangles in lots of different graves, actually all across Europe now. And they came from the Mediterranean, so they were being traded a huge long distance, especially back then. Um, and none of them were broken. And it's this idea of maybe it was something about, oh, I don't know, there's all theories of, um, you know, perfect things couldn't go to heaven, and, mm-hmm. or perhaps these shells were broken, these bangles were broken and handed out to the family. And then and there's that sort of hint that people kind of took a piece of shell and kept it their life for, for ages and then perhaps put them back together when that friend was, was buried and there's some odd things yeah. going on but really fascinating and this shell really was clearly very highly valued, it could have been you know, as seen as, as valuable as the gold stuff I want to bring us on to the cowrie shells so let's talk about the, um, the cowrie shells which are from the Maldives and this is an incredible story so I'll let you tell that story from the beginning so let's start in the Maldives with people discovering cowrie shells. Right, yeah. So cowries are these little little gastropods, little snails. Um, there's lots of different species, but one in particular lives in the Maldives, in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And it'll give it away a little bit to tell you that they're called the money cowrie. That's their kind of common name. And, you know, way back, I think sort of starting, we've got evidence certainly in the 15th century, um, in India they were used as kind of a common, a common currency, just for small... Sort of trading in small goods. I think people, um, you know, in marketplaces and that kind of thing, were using shell these carry shells as money, um, and they were coming from the Maldives. They were being traded under very strict control of the monarchs in the Maldives. They would um, parcel them up. Um, actually, they, they catch them in a really interesting way, which was really cool. The way that these things were gathered, it wasn't that people just went out and kind of 
picked them from the sea. They would they would throw palm leaves into the shallow mm. waters around the atolls in sort of these beautiful, clear tropical waters you get in the Maldives. You chuck a palm leaf in, leave it for a few weeks, and the cowries crawl into the into the leaves and sort of find it as a nice place to hide. Then all you need to do is just drag the leaves back out of the sea, leave them on the uh, or yeah, leave them on the sand for a bit, and all the cowries drop off. Dig a big hole, chuck the cowries in and they'll just kind of rot away and then you've got lovely shells left so that's how they did it bundled them up traded them up to India in exchange for rice and cloth and things like that so that was the kind of the original small trade in, in cowries and, and, you, and shells are used as money all over the place so, mm. so that's kind of a common thing that these um, shells were, were used as currencies like you know Chinese character for money is I think the symbol for cowries so, so they were using cowries as well so that's a thing that happened and then the whole thing really changed when European traders showed up so we're talking kind of um, 16th, 17th century. And they, they were coming to, to Asia to... So further beyond the Maldives, they were going to get tea and spices and all those kind of high-priced silks and that kind of thing and bringing them back to Europe. Um, but they would stop off in the Maldives on the way. And they basically kind of realised that the, there were these, um, these shells and made this distant connection to the, the ultimate destination these shells which was West Africa so it was a long long way away but these European traders figured that actually what they could do is load up on really cheap cowries actually in India they wouldn't collect them probably directly from the Maldives they probably got them from India and they were cheap because no one, they weren't really worth that much and they would sail all the way around Africa thousands and thousands of miles back to London and sell these cowries to slave traders who would then put them back in their ships sail back down the coast to West Africa and exchange the shells for humans, for human life. So they'd figured out, there had been this trickle of shells coming across Africa from India, we think, and shells were being used as rec- a sort of really low-grade sort of local currency, but not very much. And it was really the traders who came along and were like, hey guys, we've got these shells and you kind of do value them. How about we swap them for people? And this whole thing just exploded and... It was like this single trade, like the only place these shells came from for the money wasn't the Maldives. It was this complete kind of monopoly on where this money came from. Only came from the Maldives. Went on these crazy long journeys and then eventually were, you know, exchanged for hundreds of thousands of human lives. Um, And billions and billions of shells were traded. And then ended up, the kind of, the sort of irony at the end of the story is that these human slaves were then sent, most of them were sent off to the Caribbean to work sugar plantations. The sugar that they were growing went back to London, and that sugar sweetened the tea that had originally been bought from Asia, packed amongst the shells that their lives had been bought for. So there's this kind of weird, massive, long-distance trade that was going on with shells and people and tea and sugar. Just totally tragic. Just this idea that you could swap humans for shells. It was just Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like you can't imagine that the, the slave trade could get any worse in the telling, but to find out that they didn't even pay proper money, <laughs> they weren't giving the slave traders in Africa gold these I'm Andrew Muller. Check out the growing Little Atoms media empire at littleatoms.com. I want us to finish off talking about, I mean loosely, still really, how human culture has affected mollusks in terms of ecological change, in terms of climate change, um, warming oceans, you know, acidification of oceans and things. Let's talk about what's going what's going on, what's happening with the mollusks. Yeah, they're kind of I guess that's another reason why why it made sense to me to write the book. Not that I wanted it to be this kind of hard hitting, oh gosh, everything's going to pot environmental book. But actually they do ha- they do represent 
a lot of the problems in the natural world and in the oceans, like there's a lot of things happening to mollusks that are representative of a broader sort of problems. They're being overfished, overharvested, there are populations that are kind of basically extinct. I mean, there used to be massive oyster reefs around the UK. We used to have this, the native oyster that was hugely abundant, like massively abundant, and the Victorians were scoffing them by the million. And they've basically gone now. And the reason they've gone is a combination of overharvesting plus pollution and disease as well. So there is a weird kind of, at some point uh, sort of in the late 19th century, a disease arrived in the UK. We don't really still know what it was, but it pretty much wiped out. The, the remaining oysters were wiped out by this disease, which were already stressed because they were overharvested. And, and the Industrial Revolution was really getting going and kind of polluting the seas as well. So there's definitely kind of those big environmental problems, the, the mollusks face of those sorts of things. And then they do face this very specific problem this side effect of climate change that is very particular to things that have anything to do with calcium carbonate mm-hmm. in the seas and that's ocean acidification so this is the idea that aside from any change in temperature and warming because of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we've been making it also dissolves in the ocean and and actually that's a good thing because i think something like a third of all the carbon dioxide ever made by human activities has been absorbed into the oceans so if it wasn't for the oceans, climate change would already be unbearably worse than it is now because mm-hmm. it would all just still be in the atmosphere. But that carbon dioxide doesn't just sit there in the oceans unnoticed. It essentially forms a form of acid. It reacts with water and forms mild acid, which messes around with ocean chemistry in various complicated ways, but basically means that it is becoming harder for things with calcium carbonate shells and skeletons to, to get along. And we know this is happening. It's, it's just chemistry. There's no question about it. The oceans are 30% more acidic than they were 200 years ago. If nothing changes, they're going to be 150% more acidic in the next uh, 100 years or so. So that's just that's just a fact. That's not questioned. And the reason it's a problem for mollusks in particular is because their shells basically start dissolving mm-hmm. in this more acidic water. It isn't actually acid. It's not that the seas are acidic. It's just that they're more acidic than they used to be. They're, so their shells are becoming more damaged, or they could be, become harder for mollusks to make their shells and to repair them. And there's lots of predictions and studies showing that this could be a problem in the future. Although not for all the species of mollusks, some seem to maybe have mechanisms which mean they can cope. Like cuttlefish, for example, just seem to keep on going. Like if you people, you know, you take a cuttlefish, plop it in an aquarium tank, and pump it full of carbon dioxide at increasingly high levels, and it just keeps on going. It's like bring it on! I'm fine. I'm really fine. In fact, I'm better than I was. And then there are others that just go, oh, God, I can't grow and just die. Or put that and warming as well. So often it's a combined thing, you know, it's higher temperatures and, mm-hmm. and lower pH. And they just don't survive. Or their juvenile stages are often the sensitive ones. The youngsters don't survive. So there's a big question about what's going to happen in the future with, with mollusks. And other things like coral reefs as well. They also have calcium carbonate skeletons. That's a big problem. And there's one group of mollusks, actually, that I, I write about in the book. Partly because I just really wanted to learn more about them and to see them for myself because they just seemed like someone had made them up and it couldn't possibly be true that there are such things as sea butterflies which are tiny sea snails that have evolved not a single foot that they creep around on on the seabed like most of them do but they have split their they've evolved to split their feet into two little wings and they fly around the open sea and they have tiny tiny delicate transparent shells and Because of that, sea butterflies are probably one of the most vulnerable groups to ocean acidification Mm -hmm. because they just don't have much to lose in the first place. And so there's lots of studies going on in labs and also in the wild looking at the areas of the ocean which are more acidic 
already it's not just it's uniform everywhere there are some bits where it's worse and they already are seeing we think the signs of sea butterfly shells starting to get cracked and kind of just not doing as well and apart from them just being really beautiful creatures they we think they probably play a really important part in the ocean ecosystems they are like kind of link between the the lower levels of like the, the plankton the phytoplankton they're producing food from the sunlight and they eat you know these are the animals that eat those um and then other animals eat the sea butterflies so they could be really abundant in certain areas and form food for whales and birds and fish and things and so so if the sea butterflies do start having problems it could cause big problems elsewhere we don't know for sure but it's kind of worrying that that could be the way things are going so as well as all of that happening you know the, the causes of global warming on on mollusk population i mean there are other things like you know we mentioned earlier that you know we, we have no idea how many species there are and there are species out there that we haven't found yet and you know there'll be deforestation going on which is probably destroying some species of snails that we'll never discover and you know we could perhaps think so what but you know finish off telling us the story of one particular snail the core snail and its venom and how that is, well, what it's being used for, possibly. And why it's important that we find weird <laughs> snails in the jungle. Very important, the cone snail. Um, is, uh, those are sea snails. Oh, I'm sure sea there's snails. lots of ones in the jungle, too. But the sea ones are really good. Uh, no, so, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's tons of cool stuff that we're finding in, in the mollusk world that's just being really kind of selfishly really useful for people so if less if, if just the kind of mind-boggling brilliance and diversity is not enough to convince us that we need to protect the oceans and mollusks and everything else then you know they can be useful for us and cone snails are a brilliant example of that so these are these shells that live in mostly in the tropics the ones with beautiful patterns that we now think we can explain through computer automaton equations but they have something else up their sleeve which is that they are very very poisonous and there are some species there's um i should say cone snails we think are the most diverse uh, genus so you've got species and then genus um it's the kind of levels of organization so humans are homo sapiens and homos are genus um so their genus is probably the most diverse in the oceans it's like i think we think there's 800 species which is huge like of all the animals that live in the sea, there could be like this genus is huge for, for, for cone snails. So they're pretty awesome to start with. Um, but there are some species that have uh, the ability, if you were to get a sting from one of them, it could kill you. Um, they fire out, they have their teeth are highly adapted, they fill them with poison and spit them out. The idea is they're actually mostly catching fish. But the idea that a slow-moving snail can catch a fish that should just swim off mm-hmm. is quite bizarre. Though usually the fish are asleep at the time, so they are sort of cheating, but you don't want them to wake off and swim off. But they have these poisons, and they're incredibly complex. Slowly, scientists have been kind of unpicking the complexity of cone snail venom, finding out that they are, prob- they are the most complex venoms on the planet. Uh, they, each shot of venom has probably got maybe 200 different compounds mm-hmm. and they're tiny little peptides little subunits of proteins um, which we now call conotoxins and each one has this exquisitely specific effect on the body of a fish because they've evolved to be able to catch fish and that's because they're vertebrates they also affect us um us as vertebrates too and so scientists have found that if you put these conotoxins into different parts of of human sensory systems um, it has exquisitely specific effects and actually that's really useful for studying 
and brains and nerves and how they work. Because what you can do is sort of switch bits of the nervous system off and say, okay, what effect does this have? By switching off the channels that are kind of just conducting nerves around the body, basically, but in very, very specific ways. So it's this incredibly useful research tool, which is one thing. And then there were applications to make drugs and medicines and painkillers out of these. That, that's the first thing we've really done with cone snail venom, is make this very specific painkiller that basically blocks the passage of nerves from uh, the sensory nerves to the brain. Mm-hmm. So if you have pain, it just says it just cuts off that communication channel. Um, and it's being used, it's actually being used, I think mainly in the States, to treat people with chronic pain. And it's better than morphine, it's less addictive, and it's it has fewer side effects and so that's the first one but there's tons of other stuff in development they're looking at like recently they discovered actually that cone snails not only use these toxins but they have a form of weaponized insulin which they use they put up puffs of insulin to the these sleeping fish which then gives them this kind of lead not uh, sort of they just knocks them out basically it gives them this hyperglycemic shock so they just fall unconscious and that gives the snail time to, to slowly absorb this fish into its body and, and, and uh, digest it and so and that again is this really interesting small molecule which is having this effect of insulin so who knows what we'll find in that and what we'll use for diabetes research and treatment and all that kind of stuff and this has so many like I say there's 800 species of cones now we think maybe more and we've only really looked at a handful of species in terms of the venoms they have. So, you know, what else have we still got to find? It's amazing. And, and cone snails are threatened. Like they are, they are the ones that in some places have only got really small ranges. So, you know, if they go in that particular island, then that's it. You know, that species is gone. So we do, we really do need to look after the cone snails. <laughs> I've been talking to Helen Scales. We've been talking about her book, Spirals in Time, The Secret Life and Curious Afterlife of Seashells. Uh, which is out now from Bloomsbury Sigma book. So, Helen, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you for having me. It's been a huge pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.